This week on Dig Me Out, for a very special 200th episode, Tim and Jay review Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 by Guns N' Roses. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me, once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, we are finally at episode 200. Two, zero, zero, the big double centennial, the big double deuce, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> well, uh, we could call it that. That's cool. I I, whatever it is. Uh and as promised, we are tackling Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 by Guns N' Roses, the 1991 release. Two albums released at the same time. Um, it's a daunting task, but we're willing to undertake it. I know, Jay, that you and I were both concerned about our mental capacity tackling this entire record. It's two and a half hours long. Yeah, our so stamina. In order, yeah, our stamina. So in order to alleviate some of the pressure, we have invited... One of the uh, most knowledgeable rock and roll uh, journalists and uh, aficionados that we know, past guest and uh, one someone who helped us out with a couple interviews in the past as well, returning uh, for the first time in a while. I think it's been Mr. Chip Midnight. Chip, how are you t- this evening? I'm great, and I'm ready to get in the ring. <laughs> Excellent. Is that good? Every time you use a pun based on a song title or a lyric. I'm going to mark that down. I'm going to give you a point. Nice. And, and the winner will receive the Walmart single edition version of Use Your Illusion that was released <laughs> in 1998. You know, you know, Tim, you ain't the first to do that. Whoa. <laughs> two two points. Two points for Chip. Wow. That's, uh, Jay, don't cry. Uh, hey, don't damn me. <laughs> I'm going to be quiet on this one. Well, don't don't give me any, any of that double talking jive that you've been, or we're gonna have to start a civil war. Anyway, that's enough. That's enough. That stupidity. Let's talk about Usual Illusion One and Two. It was a dare. We took it on, and here we are. Before we get into the record, um, I want to ask you guys. You know, this is the early '90s. This is when people still would stand in line at midnight to buy a record. They go at Monday, you know, evening, eleven o'clock, ten o'clock, whatever it was, get in line for the big releases. Uh, do you remember purchasing this record back in the day? Chip, I'll start with you. Absolutely. I, I did buy it at a midnight sale at the record store in Columbus on campus next door to McDonald's. And I can't remember what, what it's called, but but Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 and Ozzy's No More Tears, which was also released that night. Excellent. Jay, yep. you? I didn't get it when it first came out. I was, uh, let's see. I remember friends at school getting it i probably dubbed the tapes cassettes and then i bought it on cd probably i want to say a year or so later but i definitely remember when it came out yeah i also did not buy it uh when it came out and they came out together right they did yeah. uh they... so i remember because i was in high school um and money was tighter yep <laughs> um uh, you know, a lot of a lot of kids had to choose which album they were going to get. They couldn't afford to buy both. Um, obviously, Chip, you bought both, but 
Did you guys see other people have to do that or talk about that? Or did you do that, Tim? I'll let Chip go first. Chip, well, I, was go just ahead. Say, I don't I don't remember, honestly. Um I don't remember if I bought it on cassette or C D either. I think I bought it on cassette. Um, but yeah, I don't remember if people bought both or just one or the other. Because I think I had to like borrow, like one kid bought two and one kid bought one, and I had to like borrow both to get the <laughs> get the whole thing. And then I eventually bought it, but uh, I just remember that because it. I mean, it would have been. I mean, cassettes were like twelve bucks, somewhere between like eight and twelve, weren't they? Yeah. So we're talking yeah. like probably with tax and everything, over twenty five bucks. To buy this? That 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 was so long ago, but I'm gonna bet that they probably did like a two for twenty deal, maybe. That's what I would have done. I don't know. And what were C- what did, what did CDs cost? They were like maybe fifteen to twenty. Yeah, they're like it was like fifteen ninety nine or so to buy it on CD. Like seventeen ninety nine. You could have been talking close to forty bucks to buy it on CD at the time. Yeah, but I that's just a re- lot now. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, the day after it came out, so the Tuesday, uh, the kids that bought it, we had a senior lounge in our cafeteria where only the seniors were allowed, and it had a uh, like a double cassette deck boombox in there, and whoever bought it threw it in the boombox, mm-hmm. and it stayed in there for a month. Like that <laughs> did not leave. And that's where the ping pong table was. So if yeah. you were playing ping pong, you were playing ping pong. To, the soundtrack was Use Your Illusion. Wow. One and two for a month. There's a, a lot of swearing on this record. Mm-hmm. Anything goes in the senior lounge, Jay. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize. Yeah. Okay. Was there this was, the senior lounge in Ohio or, or Buffalo? Junior and senior years were in, uh, were in Ohio, Chagrin Falls. And the senior yeah. lounge, the senior lounge was like, it's a little like, it was like a, a it was cemented off like it had its own. It was like a literally like a little room that it was open, but it was sort of like by itself. And underneath there was, uh, you know, it had like a lower ceiling than the rest of the cafeteria, which was it had a higher ceiling. And um, it was probably used for like originally going to be used for like um, storage or something like that. It was kind of weird. It was just this odd little like cavern. And there was a ping pong table shoved in there and some couches. And, uh, there was even like, I mean, just, you know, besides the bad behavior of or, or the bad language on this record, there was uh, ping pong tournaments going on, which involved the exchange of money as well. So there was gambling. There was lewd Jeez. music. It was quite the. Uh, wow. Yeah. We we're a little a little more buttoned up in Ohio. I don't, I don't know what 80s movie you came out of, but uh, <laughs> that stuff didn't like, go on in our senior lounge. Like a scene right out of Over the Edge. Yeah. Have you, have you seen that? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> You're talking the Sly Stallone arm wrestling movie? No, 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 no. Oh. The, uh, the, wasn't it called Over oh, the Edge? Oh, that's Over the Top. Yeah, Over the Edge was like the, um, the 70s rec center that all kinds of, um, illicit drug dealings went on and all Dolly's delinquents played ping pong all the time and. Oh, wow. It was that. Do you know, do you know about that movie? No. No, but what you're describing. Go is see it. It's awesome. Is it on Netflix? Oh, man. I, I, I don't know. I've seen it. It used to be on like uh, cable all the time. It was probably from like the early '80s. It says nineteen seventy nine over the edge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there we go. Well, and I'm the gonna tie in. The tie in is that like when I watched it, I was pretended like the delinquents in that movie were in rock, like grew up to be Duff McKagan. 
and <laughs> rock band guys because they they have like that's the way I picture like all these '80s and early '90s rock stars growing up is like these kids. So check it out. Starred Matt Dillon. Yeah, excellent. Nice. Well, I'm going to do a quick history of the band. Seems kind of irrelevant, but in terms of everybody should know the history of Guns N' Roses, but I'm just going to give some some brief points here. Um, formed in Los Angeles in uh, ni- around 1985, the original classic lineup that signed to Geffen Records in 1986 was vocalist W. Axel Rose, lead guitarist Slash, rhythm guitarist Izzy Stradlin, bassist Duff McKagan, and drum- drummer Steven Adler. Uh, they've released... The band Guns N' Roses, not necessarily that lineup, has released six studio albums to date with 100 million records sold worldwide. Um, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 came out in 91, one week before Nirvana's Nevermind, I believe. They re- And the two albums debuted at number one and number two. Now, Use Your Illusion 2 debuted at number one, and Use Your Illusion 1 is at number two when they debuted. And they have sold a combined 35 million copies worldwide, including 14 million in the United States. Um, the band was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2012. Now, I have some odd bits and pieces here of notes. I mentioned that number, or Usual Illusion 2 sold more during the first week and went to number one. It has always sold more than one, and is never one is never overtaken two. Huh. Yeah, I wonder why. But we'll get into that. Uh, November Rain, the video that everybody knows, Stephanie Seymour and all this Axel or uh, Slash playing guitar out in the desert by a church. One point five million dollars to make that video, which the band paid for. It was not paid for by the record company. It's paid for by the band. Eight thousand dollars was to pay for this the custom made coffin that Stephanie Seymour laid in. So, uh, there you go. Various reports, um, websites I'm talking about, have said that uh, Axl Rose actually wanted this to be two two-volume sets. And the record label was like, no, that's a little <laughs> over the top. They got close with the amount of songs here. They did. The Use Your Illusion tour uh, was seen by almost 7 million fans. It grossed about $57 million dollars. Spanned 190 dates and three years. There were two riots, and the following bands opened up for them during various times Soundgarden, Metallica, Faith No More, Nine Inch Nails, Skid Row, Smashing Pumpkins, and Body Count. Smashing Pumpkins, huh? Yeah. In response to claims that songs like Back Off Bitch and Locomotive were misogynistic, Rose said, quote, in an interview, I've been doing a lot of work, and I've found that I have a lot of hatred for women. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, he's honest. Yeah. During the um, the writing and recording of the albums, uh, guitarist Izzy Stradlin, drummer Steven Adler, and the band's manager Alan Niven all left the band. To replace Stradlin... Uh, do you know who one of the guitarists was, or guitarists were, who were asked to uh, replace Stradlin? Um, he was in another uh, L.A. band that had some fame and broke up after a couple albums. That was asked before Gilby yes. Clark? Yeah. Yes, I know. Who? 
because it's in my 1991 Ohio State Lantern review. That would be Mr. David Navarro from Jane's Addiction. It's true. He was the original person asked to replace Stradlin. He said, quote, back in those days, I was simply too intoxicated to show up to anything. That would not have worked. No. I wonder how I knew that before the internet. Like, the internet was not around when I wrote that review. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the track My World, which is the last track on Usual Illusion 2, no one else in the band knew about the song. Uh, it was done primarily by Axel himself with the producer, and it is a, I guess you'd call proto-metal rap, rap metal. I guess and, you could call it that. I don't know. It's it's proto-something. Yeah. <laughs> the original version of November Rain was 25 minutes long. <laughs> And it was originally, they started writing the song as early as 1983. What do you mean original? Like the demo? Or was there a recorded version that was edited? There was a, there was a demo that was 25 minutes long. Okay. And then over the years, it took them like 10 years or 8 years, whatever, to actually pare the song down to like a workable length. Right. When the albums were originally shipped... They sent 4.2 million copies of Usual, Usual Illusion 1 and 2 to the record stores, which was the at the time the largest shipment ever of a new release. Interesting note about Slash. He said, quote, I don't like using headphones. I'd go in there. He's speaking about recording the album. I'd go in there and play along with the band just for the vibe and energy. Then I'd go back in the studio afterwards, get in the control room, and do my guitar parts there. So all every single guitar part for Slash is an overdub. Yeah. The horns in Live and Let Die in November Rain are all synth generated by Axel. I mentioned in uh, August of 1998, there was a single disc, Use Your Illusion, that was released uh, featuring 12 of the most popular and least objectionable songs because Walmart would not stock Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 when it came out. Wow. What, did it, what I never heard of that. What is it called? It's just called Use Your Illusion. It's not called oh. 1 or 2. And it has artwork that it's the artwork and it's half purple and blue and half red and orange and there's no songs that have bad language well that wouldn't be very many of them yeah you could pretty much most of uh album one wouldn't qualify yeah um guns and roses is the only band to hold the top two album spots in the u.s and the uk at the exact same time with use your illusion and then, of course, mm. the last one is I mentioned about the album cover. It's actually a based on a painting by Raphael called The School of Athens in the uh, Vatican. And Axel had bought the painting and liked it that he decided to use it for the album cover. And the title of the painting is Use Your Illusion, which is where the name of the albums come from. Oh. So that is all the notes uh, about Use Your Illusion 1 or 2. We got a lot of Facebook feedback about this record. I'm not going to read it all because there was quite a bit. But I wanted to mention one. Uh, Carl Foss said, Use Your Illusion reminds me of the Beatles' White Album. Each band member with a different agenda and goal putting together an eclectic mix of songs. Also like the Beatles, it was pretty much the end of the band. The boogie rock is competent but not exactly memorable. Slash doing slash things no matter what the song is cool. I'm glad the albums are the way they are as a historic artifact of the biggest band in the world at that point in time. I want to get into that because um, it seems like the biggest bands in the world always have to make a huge artistic statement 
and that is the double album. Although in this case, it's two albums released at the same time, but yeah. it, it's really just a double album. So I, I heard this somewhere. This was described as the White Album meets Waterworld, which is to huh. say that it's it's a massive, both crowning achievement and epic failure at the same time. And I want to, you know, looking back on that now, I want to take, I want to ask you guys: Do you feel like the the two albums stand alone as individual albums, um, or do they need each other? Chip, I'll start with you. I think they stand alone as individual albums, and in retrospect, looking back and listening to them a lot more in the last week or so, um, there is a lot of filler. So I think I, I think it could have been one record, or if Axel had his crystal ball and could look back, should have done one record at the time, waited three or four years, and put out the rest of that stuff as a second record so that he wouldn't have a 20-year gap between releases. Uh. It's hard. I, I don't. I, I kind of think of it as one record. I think I have a lot of issues with the sequencing of the two. It's or it doesn't really make sense to me now that I listen to it. Why they chose the groupings they chose and the sequence they chose. So I kind of view it all like when I'm in the mood to listen to this, I usually go and listen to, to both of them. I kind of like what Chip's saying in terms of it would have been great if they would have broke this up. Um, I could have seen them do it more in a '70s kind of format where. They do maybe eight songs at a time and release them every once a year or every nine months, kind of like mm-hmm, how yep. anyone used to do. Yep. And then just just keep do the same tour they did, but just keep you know just keep touring for three years. And over the course of three years, you basically put out three or four records of this material. And you probably could have um, uh, grouped some of this stuff together, and it would have made more sense. So like the stuff that kind of has a you know, honky tonk boogie to it. You could have put together the stuff that's more epic. You could have put together the stuff that's more like appetite. You could have put together and maybe sequence those out. So maybe you do the appetite stuff first and then you do the ambitious stuff and then you do the, you know, the honk, the honky tonk stuff. And then, um, you know, I, I think it's, that would have been an interesting way to go about it. This, this choice was probably the, of all the ways you could have thought to do this, this would probably I think was probably the worst way to package this music. I, I want to jump on something you said, which was the sequencing. It is a really bizarrely sequenced pair of albums. I mean, track three on the first record is the cover of um, Live and Let Die. Yeah. They cover a Wings song. Yeah. Which I can't think of anything less cool in 1991 than covering oh, no. Wings. On track four is Knocking on Heaven's Door, which I realized was like a live staple 
of the band, but seems like it should have just been like the B side of one of the songs that was released, or or they could have put on an EP prior to the album coming out with like, you know, a "Don't Cry" EP with "Knocking on Heaven's Door" as one of the, you know, bonus tracks. But it seems like such a bizarre move to put covers on and put them so high up in the in the track listing. Yeah, wasn't the Ch- Chip? Can do you can you clarify my memory on this? Wasn't "Knocking on Heaven's Door" released before this in some way? I remember. I, hearing... Yeah, you know what? I think it was. I think a live version was. Um, yeah. What was that? I was a huge Appetite for Destruction fan, a huge Guns N' Roses early fan, and I used to buy all the not all of them. I bought as many as a high school student could afford, uh, like twelve inch, you know, like two or three song. Um, mm-hmm. albums mm-hmm. they put out and I'm pretty sure that, that was a b-side on maybe Welcome to the Jungle or Paradise City I, I think I still actually have that in my collection somewhere but I'm pretty sure it was released as a live version but I also collected a bunch of bootleg albums and I had a couple Guns N' Roses ones and I Tim going back to something you said before I'm pretty sure that I had November Rain on one of those before before it was on Use Your Illusion I'm, I'm pretty sure I had heard that song as well that's he had, they, and they had talked about that song. I remember, yeah, like, way before these records came out. It was sort of a, I don't know, you guys might know the story better, but it was sort of a, a, a point of contention with Axel and like the record company that he he had to be allowed to be able to do that song, and he had had it for a long time. Yeah, and, but yeah, I remember that. Uh, so when I heard uh, "Knocking in Heaven's Door," when I saw it on here, I was like, it sort of felt like, oh, well, they got to put this on here because it's kind of. It was sort of like a, it was popular with the mega fans yeah. because it was a B-side or something. I remember hearing it a ton, like somebody had it and it sort of felt like, oh, they had to finally officially put it on a record because it's so popular in the live show and with the fans. So that one sort of made sense. Live and Let Die, that was like, what in the world? Did, did um, they play, do you guys remember, did they play the uh, Knocking on Heaven's Door at the, um, the Live at the Ritz? Do you guys remember seeing that? Yeah, I saw that. Uh, I, think I think they did. I think they played it at that. So it I might have been they did. not really pressure, but kind of like everyone's used to hearing it live. And now mm-hmm. they, they, you know, before again, before the Internet, there was no way to uh, to get that song. So as a kind of maybe as a bone to the fans, they put it on there. I don't know. Yeah, that's that's right. That is where I heard it. So here's the history of Knocking on Heaven's Door. Uh, it was in their live sets from pretty much the beginning. They released a live version of it in 1987 as the B-side to Welcome to the Jungle. It was on the maxi single, back when they had maxi singles. <laughs> and it was also then they did a studio version that was used on the Days of Thunder soundtrack that came out in 1990. And then that was altered for Use Your Illusion 2. They changed um, some of the, you know, the way it was recorded, but it was essentially the same track that was on, on that soundtrack. And then the video version they did for this re- record, remember the live video thing? It didn't have like a reggae break in it or something. Or is that in the re- is that in the regular song too? No, I think wasn't it's that, in the re- regular song. Wasn't that the last? For some reason, I'm thinking that was like the last video they did for this record. Or was it strange to the last video? Uh, they did a lot of videos. Um, I don't know the order of them all in terms of. 
So Estranged was released uh, January 17th, 1994. Let's think about that for a minute. This album came out on September 17th, 1991, and in January of 94, they're still putting out videos. And so, Tim, what you were talking about before the bands they toured with, I saw them in June before the record came out at, um, I think it was like, there was this live venue at, like, I think it was at Beulah Park in Columbus, the, the racetrack. For like one or two summers, they did this thing called the Capital City Music Theater. And they had shows out there, and Guns N' Roses and Skid Row played out there like two months before the record came out. So if you think about the... Yeah, if you think about the length of this, the promotion for this record, it actually started before the record came out and lasted years. Well, yeah, because I remember um, Civil War was released a a year or more before the record came out. Do you remember that? Yeah, there was an EP. It just appeared on radio. Yeah, they released it as an EP before the album came out. It was the and, and then they released it again as a single two years after the the album came out. There were seven singles released off of Usual Illusion 1, or off of Usual Illusion 2, and six singles off of Usual... So there's 13 singles total released from the two albums, off the the 30 songs. Over half were released as singles and had videos. Wow. Oh, man. Pretty much, it's unprecedented. I think the last band to do that is probably Smashing Pumpkins with Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. Yeah. It was just a weird... um... The whole period between Appetite and this was weird, and then the way that it just played out was just so uh, odd. I, I, I don't, I like, yeah, like, like you just said, I can't think of another band that's done anything in terms of the the length and the strangeness of how things were released and what they did and how they promoted it. And I mean, they toured long enough for this. That did Izzy did Izzy tour at all for this record? Uh, he quit. Just before they were supposed to go on tour, yeah, and then I... Gilby Clark broke his arm uh, during the tour, and Izzy joined them for a couple weeks while Gilby Clark was uh, mending. Yeah, because when I saw them, Gilby was was in the band. Because they, to- I mean, they toured long enough for this that Gilby became a pretty well known member of the band, and never really he played on the Spaghetti Incident, but that's a minor blip in their career. The story goes with Izzy that. They had finished recording. So they originally went to Chicago to record, and it was a disaster. They had basically gotten like two and a half songs partially done, but everybody was so messed up on drugs and not paying attention to what they were doing that it was just a total waste of time. So they went back to L.A., and this is in – you can read this in Slash's book, which I read a couple years ago, and various other accounts. Um, So they started – they basically got together a few times – and first it was like some acoustic sessions where they just got together at like somebody's house and just worked on songs and stuff that they had been emptying the vaults, you know, getting November rain finally down to the eight or nine minutes that was going to be at. And they got into the studio. They did 36 songs in 36 days for the record. And they were, they had recorded everything. And then Axel went in and started messing around with stuff. <laughs> adding synths, adding, like, layering vocals. Oh, yeah, and this okay, went on yeah. for, like, months and months and months. And Izzy was just like, "We, I can't take this anymore. Because he was basically just sitting around waiting for Axel yeah. to get done twiddling, you know, knobs and stuff like that. And he wanted to go. Yeah. And um, he pretty much said he was done at that point. Uh, so let's talk about that stuff. It's clear when you listen to the record now what 
pieces and parts of this axle was farting around with by himself. <laughs> um, so there's a couple things I noticed when I took my notes on this that are new to the band. One is this low vocal thing. Um, he'll do it like a spoken or he'll do it as a harmony, but it's like this whole new voice that appears on this record that hadn't really appeared on any of the previous mm-hmm. Guns N' Roses stuff. And the way it's produced is like probably so you can hear it. It's just so separate from the rest of the mix um, whenever it comes in. How do you guys think that, how do you, did that stand out to you now? Does it, did it seem odd to you at all? Yeah, I definitely, I definitely went back and when I was listening to it again, definitely heard that. And and I'm I'm sure I did at the time, but um, yeah, that, I I definitely heard it. You're like, why is he doing, that's why I kept thinking like, why did he have to do that? (laughs) Like just, just sing like you did on appetite and i mean I, there's some cool things where they do like a doubled vocal um which is cool but there's this where he goes in and clearly like gets indulgent and does this weird vocal this low vocal thing that's that's very strange i think that that was one of the biggest disappointments in going back and listening to it because one of the things that was really a surprise for me in a positive sense was I went back and it was like, while a lot of these songs are in terms of the rock songs, when I went back and listened to them, what, what I've remembered of them was that they didn't stand up as far as how good the, the uptempo stuff was on appetite. And when I went back and listened to the more uptempo stuff, like perfect crime and various other ones, I was like, okay, well these actually do kind of, they do work a lot better than I, than I realized. His vocal was the thing that was distracting. Yeah. It's so blatantly separate from what's going on with a lot of the songs mm-hmm. um, that it really just sort of draws your attention away from what the rest of the band's doing. And I think that's probably what caught me off guard, why I didn't connect with this record as well right. as I did with Appetite. was because I was so focused on what he's doing because he's so loud and he's got so many layers of vocals and stuff like that that you yeah. can't really get into what the actual band is playing. Yeah. You lose, um, I, you know, at, at the time the records came out, it kind of all just blended together for me. It, partly it was, I don't know, probably had a crappier sound system, but also I just was less sophisticated in terms of a music listener. So it just kind of blended together to me. Now when I listen to it, it just, it's so apparent that it's separate and you're, what you're saying, I totally agree with that. You, you realize that the, the music for a lot of these songs is, you know, on par with appetite. It's just what he did over top of it suddenly distracts from it and becomes difficult to sometimes to be able to appreciate, uh, you know, the quality of it. It's interesting to hear that Izzy, he, from what you're saying in terms of that story, that that's something that he, you know, objected to way back then. I've, I was wrong about the Civil War EP. That actually came out in 93, not before the record. Just looked that up. So, I do think, I just read, um, 
I, I, picked, I don't know if you guys have ever read Classic Rock magazine out of the UK, but um, oh, yeah. I was on a trip, and so I needed some reading material for the plane. And they did a, a, a Guns N' Roses kind of, uh, they do these like big features. where they, I think they grab a bunch of quotes that have been printed elsewhere throughout the years, but they kind of turn it into a story. And if I remember right, what I read was that, um, and I don't know if Axel was or was not, uh, chemically dependent during this time, but basically everybody else in the band obviously was. You know, I think that had a lot to do with ultimately what happened with why Izzy left and Steven left. And I can't remember the quotes, but it, it was something along the lines like he was just getting fed up with everybody and he was shutting himself off because he was the businessman in the band and trying to keep it all together while all these dysfunctional people were around him. Mm-hmm. So I, I can see him going in and, and, and tweaking this stuff and really not caring what the other guys thought because ultimately this was kind of his, his it, it really wasn't his baby, but it was his baby. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. if these guys aren't going to put in 100% and be here all the time, then it's my thing and I'm going to do whatever I want to it. Because mm-hmm. that's what it sounds Again, listening back... When I listened to this in 1991, like I was, like I said, I was looking at my old the the review I wrote, and I think I called it like the most epic release of the year, and I loved it at the time, and it, it felt like Appetite for Destruction times a hundred, like they just blew it out of the water with mm-hmm. so much different stuff. But but yeah, you can definitely, in retrospect, hear all the all the stuff that Axel did to the record and made it his his Guns and Roses. Yeah, and I don't um. I don't mind the epic songs. I don't. I don't think that that was a wrong turn for them. I don't think the the intent of November Rain or Estranged or Coma, Coma, any of that stuff. I don't think it's. I don't think that's a bad turn for them to take. I think they pulled off really well. I think it's the stuff that, uh, you know, the stuff that's just more of a rock song that doesn't need. Right. It can be simple, you know, and and that's where I think it. That that's where I have problems with it is there's sometimes where you can the point of the song is to be indulgent and have a lot of different movements and be long and epic and there's other songs that aren't like that at all and it's cool to have a band that can do both but you also you know it's like with Queen you know what I mean like they know when they're going to do Stone Cold Crazy <laughs> you know Freddie Mercury didn't go on and do 16,000 vocal overdubs right. it's like this is a hard rock song like I'm going to do one vocal and we're going to, I'm going to sing my ass off and that's it. But then we're also going to do these other songs that are, you know, insane and have 3,000 vocal melodies and whatever. And they can do both and they both work. I think that's kind of where he got lost in terms of um, not being able to play the material, I guess. That's a good point bringing up Queen because clearly, and Chip mentioning this, this was a bit more of Axel's push than a lot of the guys in the band in terms of the sort of epic grandeur that he was going for and i think queen is probably the, one of the big st- uh stepping stones or, or touchstones i should say not stepping stones touchstones for the record um in terms of the grandiose nature um i, I read somewhere that in terms of singles the closest thing that november rain has a, for a single comparison is probably bohemian rhapsody and i think that that's that's a pretty good comparison but where it appears that you know, Axel sort of lost the plot is that, you know, Queen kept those records pretty tight in terms of number of songs and the diversity of the whatever, you know, eight or nine tracks that they had on a song or on a record. Whereas, you know, at 30 tracks, it's hard to look at the 
I would say advanced songwriting of Estranged and November Rain, uh, Coma, those sorts of band, those sorts of songs, and then look at songs like Back Off Bitch or um, Pretty Tied Up or these just these other songs that just seem like they could have been B sides to Guns to um, Aquatite. And you feel like there's like this push and pull with returns to in terms of progress and regression on this record. It's like it's like they're they want to stay heavy and hard and loud, but clearly Axel wants to push them into this big grandiose direction. Well, it would have been like if Queen would have taken like basically everything from News of the World to like say the early 80s maybe maybe the game in 1980 or the um the, uh let's say the game in 1980 like the the sound of the band changes pretty dramatically through that period that it took all those songs and put them on one record together <laughs> you know and just mixed them all up you'd have been like what in the hell but they gradually like evolved and you could evolve with them and i think that's where they screwed up like they should have thought that through and slowed down and said you know, let's 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 take the best songs that we think work right now for what's the right answer to appetite. Not only will that make sense as a release and be you know higher quality, but also it'll help our fans kind of take a step forward with us, mm-hmm. <laughs> as opposed to saying, "Here's every idea that every member of the band has at this current time, and we're just going to throw them all on one big record." And but it also feels. You know, I got the band was falling apart. I mean, they, they they stuck around for a couple of years to do the touring, but there was a ton of problems within this band, and so maybe that was exactly what we just said. Maybe it was like, let's just throw everything we've written out there, yeah, and and see what we can do and make some money off it and be done. Yeah, I wonder if Axel kind of in his mind was. I know that there was talk of him only speaking to members of the band through management by the point that they were into use your illusion. Um, And I wonder if in his mind he was already thinking of like, this is, I have to, we're doing this because I'm clearing the decks of everything. And by the time we move on to the next project, these guys are not going to be here. It feels like that, especially, especially when you've got like, it it feels like a concession. And, And I think the Izzy songs are great. But it feels like a concession. Like, all right, Izzy, you've been around, you know, uh, Duff. We're gonna let you sing a couple songs. Like, just as a way to keep everybody happy. Not necessarily that that was what they. But I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows what Axel's mind and what he was thinking? But it reminds me a lot of the, <laughs> of the story of Kiss. It's the same kind of thing where, basically, they you know, like every song's got to have a Peter vocal on it and our album has to have a peter vocal on it an ace vocal and then just to keep them happy and then in the 80s paul took over because nobody else cared <laughs> and they just became his records and it's the same when, kind when of you're, dynamic when you're talking sequencing i mean the second song on usual illusion one is an izzy vocal song mm. which is kind of interesting because you don't think of izzy as as at that point in guns and roses as a singer and Dustin Bones, right out of the gate, comes out. Yep. I love that. She loves him, yes, the 
I love those songs. I, I think, um, again, when I listen to the record now, I kind of wish I could grab all of his songs. Maybe I'll do that in my own playlist, but <laughs> maybe grab his songs and a couple of the the more appetite-y um, tunes. Maybe like a Right Next Door to Hell or Back Off Bitch or something like that and, and mix those together and see if you can come up with like a you know an eight-song record that makes sense. Um, so how about how about that as a challenge to listeners? Like post in, in the comments, like your ten your ten track use your illusion album. Yeah. Which are like think of it in terms of okay, what what is the album that should have came after um I guess uh, we're forgetting about lies. Wasn't lies after Appetite? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, that was sort of a stopgap, you know. But Patience of, was a big tune. It know, was. It. I think at that point the band could have put out a plate of crap and people would have been buying it you know what i mean like they were so huge <laughs> that anything that they could they put out was going to sell they could have yeah but go ahead John, i was gonna say they could have put out a plate of spaghetti incident and sold it <laughs> yeah there you go but it's <laughs> the reason i'm bringing it up is it did show a different side of the band that you didn't see on um appetite i yeah. mean just the acoustic part you know and the and even just hearing kind of the, the raw live the live aspect Oop. of that that album but like I said, as somebody who collected that, like bootlegs and stuff, I mean, that was, Lies was not uh, um, a big surprise for me because they, they had done a lot of that kind of stuff. I don't think mm-hmm. the, the world had heard it all, but right. I had a couple a couple bootleg albums that had acoustic songs or slower songs. So, Yep. So, like, what, the, what, what would the world have been ready for from this material, in, you know, keeping in mind what they had heard to this point? Yeah. Um, what 10 songs is that? Interesting question. Let me ask you guys this. In terms of Don't Cry, do you have a preference which version you prefer? <laughs> I haven't. I mean, I know the lyrics are different, but I... Well, I not just that, but the melody is different. He sings... Oh, a, is it, it? It's a completely different, like, vocal melody. In what part? The whole song. The The chorus is the same, the Don't Cry part. But the the verse vocals are completely different between the two versions and those are the two versions on the album there's a third version which is a demo version which was released which has totally different lyrics so all three t- songs have three different lyrics and um that was released as a b-side huh it's funny i don't know the two versions just blend together to me i've just always in terms of the video know. and this the single that was released it's the use your illusion uh use your illusion one version yeah yeah I, I honestly don't know that I listened to, I mean, I, I, I've heard the, the other version on two, but um, because it was a single, so I'm, I'm very used to the Use Your, Use Your Illusion 1 version, and that's kind of my go-to when picking between the two, but only because it was a single. Why would you do that? That's the question. Like, why in the hell would you release a double two records at the same time and put the same song on each well there's a precedent for that um neil young did it with hey hey my my and then he so one of them is a is a loud rock version and then my my hey hey is the same song on the same album done acoustic well that's fine like i know and the beatles did that with revolution but that the musically they're not different right it's just a vocal lyric no he just changed because this is the thing axel went in after everybody was done with their parts and started screwing around and he probably sang the song one way and then said hmm i have a different melody i want to try let's try doing it with this melody and then he said well that that melody is really cool too 
Let's just put them both on the records. Now, because you brought up "Don't Cry," I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this out there. Um, you guys know this. Uh, I'm a huge Blind Melon fan, and mm-hmm. Shannon Hoon sang on "Don't Cry." He sang on a couple songs on this record, but he was featured in the video. And I had a chance to interview Shannon and get to know him pretty well. And I would say none of that would have been possible had I not seen him in the "Don't Cry" video. Because when I put in the interview request. Blind Melon was not, they had just gotten signed, they had no records out, and I was able to use that as kind of my in when I put in the request. I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I've seen Shannon, I, I don't, I've never heard Blind Melon, but he's the guy in the Guns N' Roses video, right? And instead of just making in, making that pitch to do an interview with no background, um, mm-hmm. I know the publicist was like, oh, yeah, that, that's cool, you know him through that, yeah, we'll, we'll hook you up with an interview with him, so... Um, and it was cool. I mean, it was it was great exposure for for eventually for Blind Melon. I mean, sure. But I but I also know because I knew Shannon that that was something that it was a great foot in the door. But it was something that uh, he got pretty sick of talking about after after Blind Melon put the record out. Yeah, see that. I I remember when seeing that video the first time and being super excited, and it was a big deal. And was it the first video? No, uh, you could be my um, first one. Was the yeah. second one? Uh, in terms of videos that were released um, for this record, for Usual Illusion 1, Don't Cry was the first. Okay. That came out uh, September 17th, 1991. You, keep, you Could Be Mine didn't come out. It Well, You Could Be Mine came out actually first. Are you sure? That but you, that was You Could Be you Mine could came be out mine. in June. In, I'm sorry, that came out first, but it came out because of the Terminator 2 movie. Yeah, right. Yeah, because it was in that right. movie, so we had a tie-in. Right. So that's why that was released first. Right. So I remember, remember, obviously, there was a ton of anticipation for this, and seeing the video for the first time, immediately you're like, "Who is that guy?" <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Who's singing? Why is there somebody singing the video? Like, I don't know who this guy is, and what is going on? And obviously, there's no internet, so you can't get answers. And he's got a flannel and Doc Martens on, which is very telling of what was coming. Yeah. Because it was also weird because I was thinking it was the first time you see Gilby Clark. Because he's in that yeah, video, right? And Dizzy Reed is wearing a shirt that says, where's Izzy? Yeah, yeah. All that stuff got analyzed like crazy. Like, what is the, what's all this weird stuff that's going on in the video? Yeah. And yeah. So uh, Shannon Hoon was one of the pieces of that <laughs> mystery. <laughs> figuring out how... Yeah. What, they just this kid walking off the street like what in the world is he doing in this video well the so the story behind do you know the story behind it uh do you want to tell him or do you want me to yeah so uh axel grew up in indiana and was i believe friends with like shannon's older sister or i i believe his older sister and then when uh shannon moved out to la he i i think i think shannon's story is very much like the welcome to the jungle video where he kind of just jumped on a bus said he was going to move out to la and become a rock star and uh because of his sister's connection with with mr bill bailey um she she hooked shannon and 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 axel up and axel ended up or uh, shannon ended up working at the cat house and answering phones for ricky rackman there and shannon although blind melon's music never sounded like la sunset strip metal he, he very much started out in that scene just as a way to make some money and get some contacts and stuff. 
Mm-hmm. Is that is that what you were going to say, Tim? Yep, that's exactly <laughs> it. So let me ask you guys this. You know, there was there's a lot to be said about Nirvana and and the grunge movement sort of wiping the slate clean, but it, it's really not that simple. A lot of these bands intersected in terms of when they were released. I mean, we talked about the bands that Soundgarden and Smashing Pumpkins opened for Guns N' Roses. You know, it wasn't as simple as all the metal bands, the hair, glam, whatever you want to call them, bands from the 80s just disappeared as soon as Nevermind was released. Uh, this they, they toured for this album for years. They put out singles. They were on this, the same award shows on MTVs. And there's a lot of tension between the two sort of groups. Um, but there's not necessarily that simple narrative of grunge was grunge came along and killed all this stuff. So well, let me the, ask you. Well, here's the question I want to get to. Yeah. Has I, I kind of feel like in a lot of ways, aside from maybe one or two singles, this album, these these two albums have sort of been devalued. Whereas I think Appetite has gotten, I think, more positive spin over the years. Do you think that that's fair? That that because it sort of is in that weird time period where those those bands, you know took over in some respects that this album is sort of like lost some of its luster. I think this album, I don't think it has anything to do with that. I think it has to do with appetite. Uh, first appetite has the big hits. I mean, it has the songs everybody knows that you can play at like football stadiums and people know what you're playing. Uh, there's very little of that on here. I mean, you know, like I, I think, People kind of know November Rain, but there's it's such a long song. It doesn't have like a signature riff or a signature hook. The album covers don't help. I mean, Appetite, the one that be you know obviously became the commercial album cover, it's got the band's faces on it. You know, the logo is really clear. It's iconic. It's simple. These are a little muddy in terms of what the fuck is that, and I can't read it and. Plus, there's just two records. There's a lot to get through. It's just hard to digest for a general, in hindsight, whatever, 25 years or 30 years or however long we are here. It's hard to digest what this is, even, you know, for, for the mm-hmm. general person. Like, two records? What in the world? Like, I don't I don't recognize, you know, 90% of these songs. It's just it's just less iconic, I think, to me, um, for the for all those reasons. I mean, it's got the big hits. It's got the ones that everybody knows. You know, everybody knows the riff from "Welcome to the Jungle." Everybody knows the riffs from "Paradise City." Paradise City. Everybody knows the guitar. I mean, the guitar intro for uh, "Child of Mine" is maybe surpassed "Smoke on the Water" as being the most recognizable guitar intro in the history of rock and roll. <laughs> I mean, that riff is—it's up there. So, yeah. I mean, that that. But to your point, Tim, about. I think it's a good one in terms of how these this album, this these bands intermingled with grunge, and it's not really as a cut and dry thing as I think as we portray sometimes. The one caveat I would add to that though is that you're really talking about very, very, very successful acts um, that were able to coexist in the two the two worlds. So, and I, you know, I'm thinking like Guns N' Roses, Ozzy Osbourne, you know. Mm-hmm. Those types were, you know, they were so huge. There's no musical movement that could happen that would really, on its own, kill them. Because I think Ozzy was, uh, No More Tears might be his biggest record. 
or one of his biggest records. And you said it came out at the same time. So yeah. um, obviously he was able to, you know, make his way through the grunge thing without too much problem. Well, and then, you know, consider this Metallica's Metallica came out uh, a month before this record. And Jeez. That, think about how huge that was record was. <laughs> yeah. And they were opening for Guns N' Roses. I didn't realize that. Oh, geez. Oh, man. What, I mean, what a time period. That came out in August of 91. There was six singles released for that record. Six singles over two years. And they were the opening band. Yeah. Now, granted, you, they were not the... They were up until that record, you know, they had only made one video, which was one. And they had not had what you'd call mainstream success. They were still considered you know, somewhat of an outsider band up until, I think, the Black Album. But that's pretty... When you think about it now, how big Metallica has yeah. become in terms of, you know, Metallica is like the go-to metal band for pretty much anyone that's uh, listening to, you know, rock music. If you say Metallica, they pretty much know what you're talking about. Do you know how much touring they did together and what kind of places they played? Because I'm, I'm thinking that like when the, I'm guessing it wasn't like a real lengthy tour and it was probably like stadium shows. Yeah, they did a stadium tour together and I think Faith No More opened. Yeah, and so while it's not a co-headlining tour, it's certainly not like a, a kind of a young rookie band opening for the established act. It was, it was they toured from July '92 until October of '92 together. They played all stadiums, and you know, like RFK Giant Stadium. Yeah, and they originally wanted Nirvana to be the opening band of the three, but ended up getting Faith No More. Yeah, uh, but that was the that was the tour where they played Montreal, and James Hetfield caught fire. Yeah, yeah. And then Axel waited two hours to come out, and then when he did come out, they did like a couple songs, and he said his throat hurt, and they left, and then there was a riot. <laughs> Crazy times, man. Yeah, I was gonna say that um, Van Halen's "For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge" came out in '91 too, so like right now and there are some big singles off of that so obviously that was another band coexisting across all of this and they mm-hmm. had um allison chains open for them on that tour because i saw him yeah i remember ozzy had soundgarden opening for that for him on that tour so a lot of a lot of blending going on that i think we've tend to forget about guys we're approaching the the one hour mark here so in order to keep this on a on a, a less a less than half of the uh, Guns N' Roses length of Use Your Illusion One and Two. <laughs> let's let's wrap up with um, let's talk about you know we, we usually when we get to the end of the record we say we're the album better EP decent single. How about we go with? <laughs> do you think in retrospect this would have been better served to be a single record, or do you like the fact that they went? all out for this and put out the, the two records jay i'll start with you you know for me looking back it's fine i guess the way it is it doesn't make a difference to me i can make of it what i want it's a huge collection of music and i can now cherry pick my way through it using you know spotify and quickly make it my own playlist if i want and make sense of it in the way i want to and it's also kind of fun to um you know, I love Appetite, but, so, you know, obviously some of those songs are just so played. You get so tired of them that this is kind of fun to go back to to and and 
and you, some of it's you know it's a lot fresher. You haven't heard it as much, or you haven't focused on it as much. So I find myself you know gravitating to certain songs more now than I did then, or you know appreciating uh, things in different ways. So I'm fine with the way that it is. Um, like I said, in terms of their career trajectory or however you want to describe it, their their decision making and how it may have affected you know the band. I think it probably would have served them better to break it up um in a different way than this but uh, it is what it is for me now I, I can appreciate it this way chip yeah i would agree i i, I think in 1991 pre-album leaks pre-internet it was like my favorite band just gave me 30 songs there's not a lot to complain about that even if there were some songs that i would skip over Mm-hmm. That's 30 songs that you've given me. Like, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, and so I, I'm sure, if if I remember correctly, like, I listened to both of them a ton. Um, just like Jay, though, you know, I, I'm, I've definitely made my own playlist of songs that I like the most. Um, and like Jay said, I, I think if Guns N' Roses as a band had continued on and was, was still kind of the original lineup or, or a, a subset of that today you know, releasing three 10 song albums over the course of three or four years at the time period probably would have been a wiser decision. But yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think it was a terrible decision to release them both at the same time. I kind of like what Jay said in terms of, I I think it would have been cool if they released like 1991, Use Your Illusion 1, 10 songs. 1992, one year later, Use Your Illusion 2, 10 songs. 1993, one year later, 10 more songs. And tore the record for three years on those three albums, or four years, or five years, or whatever you want to do. But just allow a little more digestion of that. Yeah. Um, because I just feel like there's so much material to get through. You know, in going back and listening to this, I listened to this album three times. Or these two albums, three times. And I don't know that I'm going to listen to them again for a very long time. Because it's it was just so exhausting to listen to them just once but to listen to them three times so i could pick out the nuances of various aspects of the songs which probably was not even necessary just listening to it once and getting the the basics down was probably yeah, well, like i said I, I i had the cassettes and i listened to those pretty religiously probably until nirvana's nevermind came out but then still listened to it i never owned them on t- on cd until probably three months ago when i picked them up i was kind of in the mood to hear them and I got them for two bucks a piece. And that seemed like the, you know, that was worth making the CD investment. But yeah. it's been 20 years since I really felt the desire to like really sit down and, and own them again. Is there a story to why they weren't packaged together? Like why they weren't put on a double, you know, in a double package, like a proper double album? I didn't get or- an answer on that. Chip, do you know? I no, I, I could only guess. I mean, my guess would be that at that time, you package it up and you sell it at twenty twenty five bucks, and 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 maybe you don't sell as many copies as putting two separate ones out. Because I I think you probably know you've got a built in audience that's that's going to have a hard time making a decision, so they're probably going to buy them both anyway. Yeah. And that way, you could charge ten or fifteen bucks a piece. I I, I don't know though, but yeah, business. It would be interesting. I'm sure. I'm sure there's a reason why. I'm sure we could find it somewhere. But 
Just, um, I, I can't think of anybody else that's done it that way. Did you mention no, there, somebody too? There have been artists who have released two albums at the same time. I mean, Prince just did that, but it's they weren't necessarily connected the way that right, right. these two records are. Right. So, so no, strange. I can't necessarily. Because <laughs> did Bruce Springsteen? Band. Bruce Springsteen did that. He released two albums at the same time in in the <laughs> late '90s or early '80s. They're usually two different late 80s, early types 90s. of albums, right? I mean, that's yeah. kind of usually how you do it. It's you, you got two groups of different of material, and you do two different records, right. market them slightly differently. So yeah. let me ask let me ask you guys this: you get to you get to pick. I don't know what do you want to say three or four songs, like the three or four must haves, mm. and then what about like the one or two that you would have left off no matter what. <sighs> I can do must-haves. Um, Civil War is by far my favorite song on either record. It's still, every time I listen to that song, it just, I don't know, it chokes me up. <laughs> like, it just, I don't know, there's something about it that's that's uh, really cool. Look at your young men fighting Look at your women crying Look at your young men They've always done before Look at the hate we're breeding Look at the fear we're feeding Look at the lives we're leading I've always liked So Fine. <laughs> I don't know. I might be in the vast minority of that, but I just, I've always loved that song. Um, probably just because um, Duff sings and he sounds half drunk. And <laughs> I just makes me, it just puts a smile on my face every time I hear it. Oh, uh, third one. <sighs> probably one of the Izzy songs. It's 14 years, Izzy. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Maybe that one. I think so. Uh, let me check. I believe so. No, that's a yeah, weird. That is, yeah. That's a weird three, but those are three that I, I don't know, that I often go back to. I no, go with the, the, I go with three, the, uh, the the trilogy. I mean, I think that the, that's a perfect little suite of song. I think if you started the album, imagine if you got Appetite, and then you 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 got this album, Use Your Illusion, and it opened with November Rain. Imagine if that was the lead track. You would just be like, "What the? F- what is going on?" But it would be such a ballsy move to do that, to do this epic song right off the bat, and then you, you know, go with "Don't Cry in a Strange." Those are, you know, cool songs. Uh, I would add a coma into there. Oh yeah, I love coma. Damn, 
Coma's really cool, and that's the, the longest song out yeah. of all of them, at 10 minutes long. I've always been a sucker for those acoustic songs that they do, so You Ain't the First will yeah. probably be there. Um, I, I like that. I like when they get into that, you know, bluesy uh, acoustic, or, or even when they get into some of that more, like, faces-sounding stuff. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So I think that you could pretty put a pretty diverse record together between the big bombastic over the top, you know, nine and ten minute long songs, and then some of these like more stripped down, bluesy, you know, seventies rock sounding stuff. I think a lot of the more straightforward hard rock and stuff that reminds you of Appetite would probably be best left off because I think it's just it's never going to sound as good as you know Welcome to the Jungle or Rocket Queen or any of that right. stuff, or it's so easy, so why bother? Right. What were your three, Chip? I mean, I love... I mean, Don't Cry. I love... Uh, November Rain, I, I would probably put on there, except that I feel like that one I've heard so many times, so I'd probably bump that one off to make room for maybe Coma. And then um, I think my wild card one would be uh, Yesterday's. Yeah, that's a good song. I mean, I, 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 so I was going through and I was kind of like giving them stars when I was going through before we came on just so I could kind of figure out which ones I like the most. And I have about maybe six or seven songs that I gave five stars to. And they're the ones you've already mentioned, the, the big, uh, like the, the epic ones, um, the coma, a strange November rain. I, I actually love their version of live and let die. Yeah. Um, I do too. It's it's a but I, very very well done. It was just odd at the time. Yeah, yeah. Note wise, I did say like I thought Shotgun Blues kind of felt like a, a throw throwaway song. That my world is weird, yeah. and I can't figure out if I like it or hate it. It's it, you know what it reminds <laughs> me of is uh, like uh, Bjork and like um, Army of Me. It's kind of got that like the kind of a, a similar sound to it. Mm-hmm. What do you think about Garden of Eden? That was a song that I think at the time I, I just couldn't deal with. And now when I listen to it, I'm like, hey, this is pretty cool. Yeah, I kind of like that one. I gave it four out of five stars when I was going through you. What do you think about I think the for me, the weirdest song on the record other than My World is The Garden. Yeah. I've always found that song just so strange. I, I don't understand why they had Alice Cooper do the vocal. It, it, it doesn't really... It's just got this really almost psychedelic feel to it which is strange for them just a weird song the yeah. alice cooper is on there because they were in the studio and somebody said hey axel your vocal kind of sounds like alice cooper and he said well why don't we just get him to do it <laughs> oh that's kind of what i figured because when you listen to it it's clearly like axel lyrics and an axel there's a lot of it. stuff that's just like somebody was like hey that sounds like this so that reminds me of this and they were just like let's do it or like the uh, breakdown uh, at the end of that song oh. Axel recites this like thing I don't know yeah. if you know what it's, it's it's from the movie Vanishing Point which he well, had just doing... randomly saw on TV and he was like that's really cool I'm going to throw it into the song where he's doing like the weird southern accent yeah <laughs> so it's like a monologue that's in the movie I don't know if you guys are familiar with the movie Vanishing Point but it's about <sighs> a guy who has to drive a car from point A to point B and outrun the police while he's doing it <sighs> No, but every time I hear that now on that record, I on this record, I kind of cringe. I'm like, why did he do that? Yeah, it's awful. And it's because he just happened to see the movie and thought it was cool. And 
But like the sample in Civil War, the beginning of Civil War, I think is one of the best samples ever used in a rock song. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So Definitely. some sometimes it worked. Like mm-hmm. the weirdness. Other times it's it, especially now when you go back and listen, I think um the, the breakdown and I think the whole obviously the whole section of the middle section of getting the ring is painful to listen to now. Yeah, that's another <laughs> yeah. song that I was like it, it's a good song until yeah. until he starts going off. I, I, I think agree. if we I think if we actually went through this album or both albums song by song, there'd be a lot of those moments. I think collectively as a whole, they're good records. But you if you start picking apart, there's a, probably a lot to pick apart on these songs, even within th- the same song. Like the song starts out great and then doesn't come out so good at the end. <laughs> right. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, I'm, I'm getting the ring. I think the basis of that is a really cool song. Um, and I think my theory is that if Twitter would have existed in the early 90s or late 80s, that um, that whole section of the song wouldn't have happened because he would have just spotted all that on Twitter and then wouldn't have had to record it. Yeah, that was actually a, a Duff song that was titled something different, and then Axel basically took it over and changed it to make it his personal tirade. Who's doing the? Who does the drunken rant at the end? Is that Slash or Duff? I don't um, know. Where he says, um, the song's dedicated to all the Guns and fucking Roses fans. What Something for all those opposed... It's obviously not Axel. It's one of those two because it sounds like whoever's speaking is completely obliterated. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. <laughs> Another, it's one of, one of those cringeworthy moments where I'm like, oh, did you realize when you did this that this would be on this song for the all eternity? <laughs> I don't know who does it. Does it there's no notes on it in terms of yeah. who did it. But uh, any last words on Use Your Illusion, Jay? Not really. Uh, you know, it's a little... Um, you know, I, li- I like them. I like them both. I think, I think there's a lot of good stuff on here. Um, it's a little, uh, I think the one one thing, the last note I probably have across the whole record um, on revisiting it, worth noting, is um, how much piano is on here <laughs> for a band that I don't know up to this point that they had that much piano or if any on any of their recorded music. Um, so on both records, it becomes prominent within the first song or two. Mm-hmm. Um I don't even know who played it. I guess Dizzy must have or Axel. I don't know. But there's some of these songs are almost completely piano based, which is, um, you know, I remember kind of at the time, but now that I'm analyzing it and you know, can understand the dynamics of what's going on in here and some of these songs, it's uh, kind of surprising to me. It's it's Dizzy and Axel. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of surprising to me how much piano there is. Chip, last thoughts, final thoughts? Yeah, I would say if for some reason you've never heard these, um, like I said, I picked both CDs up for under five bucks total, so it's definitely worth picking them up and and kind of cherry picking the songs you like. You can make a really you can make a really great ten song record. I completely agree with that. I think the best thing to do find them used, put them in your iTunes playlist, figure out the songs you like, and make your own version of Use Your Illusion. Definitely don't go with the Walmart version because that's all the safe songs. You know what? I'm looking at that right now, and there's actually some of the explicit songs are on there. Are they? Yeah, like uh, right next door to Hell and Dust and Bones are the first two songs, and both of those are explicit. So maybe they added them, or there's beeps. I don't know, but uh, Perfect Crime is on there. That's explicit. Obviously, Back Off Bitch is explicit. That's on there. So I'm not sure what's going on. There's 16 songs on it. Hmm. Interesting. But don't don't shop at Walmart. 
No. <laughs> if there's anything you've learned from this episode, it's not to shop at Walmart because they force yes. artists to change the original vision of their artwork. And we don't want that to happen. Unless they want to listen to us. Oh, and we'll wait be a happy minute. to. Maybe, you know what? I think this isn't correct what I'm looking at. I'm on the Walmart website looking at it. And the album cover is what you described, but the actual um, title is Use Your Illusion 1. And in parentheses, it says edited. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just a messed up listing. So the on the the one that they released in 98, it was Live and Let Die, Don't Cry, You Ain't the First, November Rain, The Garden, Dead Horse, Civil War, 14 Years, Yesterday's Knocking on Heaven's Door, Estranged, and Don't Cry Alternate. Okay. Now, wait, in years since then, wait, they wait, might wait, have wait. started stocking the first and second ones. No, the first. Oh, okay. Usually, there's so, one and two. Gotcha. So they put they put both you uh, both don't cries on there. Yeah, on a twelve song album, they released <laughs> both don't cries. <laughs> they literally went through and just chose all the ones that weren't explicit. Exactly. This is like the safe Walmart version. This is yeah. exactly what it is. Wow. So. All right. Well, we have done it. We have tackled Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, uh, one of the most epic releases, not just of the 90s, but of all time. There should be a podcast just reviews double albums. That would be a heck of a undertaking. And, and, and a very important record in the 90s that I think a lot of people don't think of as being an important record of the 90s. Right, I mean, a lot of people associate Guns N' Roses for some reason with the '80s and don't realize how much of an impact they had on the. Oh no! I mean, they, the early '90s record was relevant well into '94. Yep, yeah. In terms of singles and stuff, so they're still, you know, on MTV. They're still making an impact in pop culture. So, mm-hmm. I want to thank Chip for joining us. Thanks for coming on the show and sh- spreading your uh, your knowledge. Of all things Guns N' Roses, uh, wh- where can we find you on the interwebs, Chip? Um, you can't really find me too many places on the interwebs, but you can find the my big passion these days is kidsinterviewbands.com, which is my kid interviewing bands. Excellent. It's a great series. I highly suggest if people have not checked it out, they must absolutely check it out because it's very entertaining. Anytime a new one comes out, it is required viewing. And they and Chip gets really really good bands. So yes, this is yeah, not hopefully, local bands. You know, someday, yeah, someday, someday we'll get a Guns N' Roses member. That would be awesome. That would be great. You should be able to get Slash. Uh, I if think he, he tw- would do it. If he tours the area, I will definitely try. He's touring right now. Right? Yeah. He's got a new record out. I think he's touring for it. He is. I need him to come to Columbus. I think you make that happen, Chip. <laughs> I have faith in you. Yes. Yes. Of course, if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. Thanks again to Chip and Jay for spending way too much time with this record, as I did. (laughs) We'll be back next week. Episode 201 of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages.